BBCC episode 12, my realization of the day. Back in 1989, Nicolas Cage released this movie, Vampire's Kiss, one of his most accomplished films. I think his undisputed masterpiece in the film is the alphabetical filing scene, a scene so over the top, most people probably don't appreciate the scene in context. But they should, because it's not just a showcase of Cage's operatic acting style and the importance of insane line delivery, it's also a personal statement citing where Peter has lost complete grip on reality as a whole. Hey Alva! Yes, yes, y'all. It's like that, y'all. It's like this and like that and like this, y'all. What's up? Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. It is your boy, your host, Mr. Devon Taylor. It's just me today. There is no guest. This is a solo episode. Um, I'm glad that you guys are enjoying these guest episodes that I've had the past few weeks. There's um, some more guests coming up in the future as well. However, I am trying to, you know, keep a good balance between the two of having solo episodes and guests because the way that I really envision the show is uh, an intimate one-on-one experience. So it's like and this is the first episode I've like recorded like um like during the week like during the actual week that it's released. Um for the first time in a while I was kind of stacking up the guest episodes and recording stuff in advance. So it was like, I could also record this and it's more in time. I mean, I guess you guys really can't tell the difference. But yeah, like I love doing this podcast solo, um, you know, because it is just a different way of talking about the movie. You know, I'm not trying to, um, you know, adjust to how the interview's going and, you know, kind of do that and actually play a host. Versus getting to do the solo episodes, it, it literally is just me getting to do my thing and you are getting just like my unfiltered thoughts in the best way possible, I think. Like I said, I don't know, just me personally, a lot of the podcasts that I love are solo podcasts because it makes me feel like we're just kind of hanging out. And that's what, that's the vibe I want here, you know? I do want the vibe to be like we are sitting around smoking weed, talking about movies. That's the vibe here. And um, I'm glad that I'm actually re-recording this episode. I actually recorded this episode a few days ago. And, I mean, it's fine. But then I was, like, kind of going back and I was, like, kind of frantic in the episode. I was kind of going really fast. And I've noticed that kind of happens on whenever I, like, record the same day as watching the movies. Even if it's a movie I've seen before. Even after watching a movie, I still need, like, that few hours at least. Like, at least a few hours to kind of really process my thoughts on the movie. Because, like, coming right out of it, like, even if it's a movie I've seen before, my thoughts are still just, like, kind of all over the place. They're not very organized. Even though I take notes, like, in order of the movie. But 
it's just different. I mean, and it is also different like whenever I have a guest on because then if I do have a guest on, I do want it a little bit more fresh in my brain because then I also have the time while they're talking to kind of organize my thoughts versus doing these episodes by myself. You know, it's just me. I got to keep it rolling. You know, I can't really take too many breaks here and there. I even I even feel like I edit out too many uh, pauses and breaks. Because you guys should really, you know, feel how the conversation is of me um, <laughs> talking to myself and telling you guys about these movies. You know, so I don't know. Still just, uh, you know, we're only on episode 12. Still making adjustments. There's not that many of you guys listening right now yet anyways. Or at least not that I know of. Because you guys aren't like, you know, tweeting about the show or leaving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Boom! actually had a good transition into that for once rather than just like kind of blurting it out but now I draw attention to that transition and the smoothness is gone but it's all good so before we start talking about American Psycho and Vampire's Kiss our double feature for today which I'm very excited about um that's another reason I was like redoing this episode was because American Psycho is like one of my all-time favorite movies and I wanted to make sure the episode that I talk about American Psycho in does it justice and I just wasn't feeling it with the other one so you know what we're redoing it and this is just for me and to try to present a better product to you guys. Um, but like I said, um, I'm presenting it to a very small audience because we need to get the word out a little bit more. You know, just uh, when you see me tweeting or you see me Instagramming, share that bad boy. It takes a, a couple minutes and nobody's judging you for it. Just uh, share that bad boy and write a uh, five-star iTunes review. It helps um, get the show like on different podcast charts and whatnot. But I have a solution It is time to bribe your asses. We are doing a giveaway all of this month. The entire month of August, we are doing a giveaway for a Bloody Blunt Cinema Club scare package. That's right, people. I will send you a freaking box of goodies that will have all sorts of, you know, Bloody Blunt Cinema Club inspired things. You know, I'll have some, um, some stuff for you. Um, an assortment of items. I don't know how many other ways I can say it more vague, but no, it'll just be um, it'll be a, a nice little goodie box of stuff. But the star of the scare package is the Scream Factory special edition Blu-ray of Thirteen Ghosts that just dropped like literally, um, I think like two weeks ago as of the recording of this. But guys, I fucking love Thirteen Ghosts so much. And it's especially, like, important to me, like, in giving this Blu-ray away, because 13 Ghosts was one of the first times I really started to appreciate physical media when I was younger. Um, I watched this movie, I was, I think I was, like, eight or nine or so when this movie came out, and um, the cool thing about it was you could watch the movie... And then in the special features on the DVD, because at the time, DVDs were still kind of new. And, you know, this is when um, we saw the um, opportunity for DVDs to offer all sorts of, you know, bonus features and shit like that. And commentary behind the scenes, Um, you know, usually have blooper reels, you know, things of that nature. But what 13 Ghosts did was add to uh, the movie itself, the experience of the movie, by expanding upon the mythology of the 13 ghosts in the movie 
and they had this like this like little side documentary thing on the bonus features that gave the backstory to each 13 ghosts and you could go through and you could read it and like had more artwork like like concept artwork as well of the each uh ghost design and i i remember i fucking loved that i thought that was the coolest thing because i would i would watch the movie and then i'd watch the special features and then i would go in and watch the movie again like in the same day because like i go in with like that new information now and watch it a little bit differently and i thought that was like the coolest shit so um i actually haven't looked at what the bonus features are for the blu-ray for this one because I was scared that I would unwrap it and then just keep the Blu-ray for myself. But um, I'm sure it has the, the same stuff and additional bonus features. I'm sure it does have some fucking killer artwork. It is a gorgeous cover. I, I probably will still order another one for myself. But yeah, that is the star of this uh, Blade Blunt Cinema Club scare package, which you can win by, um, I will have (laughs) the specific details for this on Instagram and Twitter, and on next episode, because we're getting a bonus episode on Friday, which is when the contest will actually kick off. So I will have the details on Twitter and Instagram, at Bloody Blunts, with three O's, but basically, the more that you follow me on social media and like certain posts, and write five-star reviews, will get you more entries into the drawing for the scare package. So that's how it's going to work. So just make sure you're following me across all of social media. Go uh, find the YouTube channel, because there's going to be Bloody Blunts content coming there as well pretty soon. And of course, like I said, um, the five-star iTunes reviews will be like extra entries like it'll probably be worth like five entries or something like that so if you go and write a review on apple podcasts i will give you like a bonus five entries into the drawing of the blablin cinema club scare package so yeah be really excited about that and this is going on all month like this will not end until the very end of the month and then in which i will announce the um the winner Of course, during this month, we will be covering 13 Ghosts. I have a couple of my Nightmare on Film Street writer buddies um, that will be coming on the show to talk 13 Ghosts. Um, That will be the last episode at the end of August. Which um, So that episode will drop 8.25 on the 25th, but then the contest itself will go all the way through the 31st. So... Be on the lookout for that, guys, so go stalk me on social media and do all that good shit. Alrighty, now that I got all of that bullshit out of the... Out of the way. Thank you, Willem Dafoe. But, uh, yeah, now that um, we got the bullshit... Let's go ahead and get into these movies. Why am I talking about American Psycho and Vampire's Kiss together? Well, they are pretty much the same movie. Like, I mean, especially like when you bare bones the movie, they are literally the same exact movie. Obviously, there are differences between our protagonists, between the tone of the film, um, but... What they do have similar are there's a lot of similar story beats. There's uh, a lot of characters kind of line up. Our protagonists also are very similar, um, not only in 
their plight and their mental state, but also in their physical appearance as well. They're, they, they can, like, they contrast each other, like, not much. Like, it's actually, like, the they don't contrast each other, like they parallel each other quite a bit, but yet are so distinctly different. American Psycho is one of my favorite movies of all time. It, I have a axe tattoo on my on my forearm. Shout out to my boy Patrick Bateman. And um, it is definitely a movie that has shaped my taste in movies. It it's a movie that has defined my my like style and brand of comedy like not only like the way that I present comedy but the comedy that I enjoy as well um it's a movie that like whenever I when people ask why I love horror movies and yes this is a fucking horror movie I am so sick (laughs) sorry while I'm getting sentimental, let me go on a little angry tangent for a sec. Again, you know my stance on calling movies a horror movie or not. But this one, I just don't get whatsoever. It's a black comedy. Yeah. But it's also about a rich white man going around sexually assaulting women and killing them and killing homeless people and just literally having disregard for anyone else besides himself. And I mean, just, but in just the way that he does things, this movie, like, it's not as gory and graphic as people think it is or how they remember, but still all the implied violence and the implied horrific things he does and, like, things that we just pick up on through little clues in the movie we'll get to more of that here in a bit but just like the the fact that he is doing very horrific things you know regardless of how funny and charismatic the performance is the character is still absolutely terrifying doing absolutely horrifying things he kills a lot of people (laughs) i mean i guess in theory but i mean he kills a lot of people Psycho is in the fucking title. How is this not a horror movie? So get the fuck out of my face. I mean, in vamp, I mean it's definitely more horror than Vampire's Kiss. But since it Vampire's Kiss is a pseudo vampire movie, automatically gets included in the horror category. I don't fucking make up the rules. That's just what fucking how y'all do it, you know. But I'm trying to change those rules. But so while we're on the subject. So, while we're on the subject of genre and subgenres, let's go ahead and take these two movies to the genre grinder and talk about what subgenres are at play here and make these two movies work the way they do. And they also just so happen to have pretty much the same subgenres as to why I also link these movies together. So, what do we have going here? We got black comedy. Both these movies are fucking hilarious. Hilarious for different reasons. Um, you know, people definitely are always laughing with um, American Psycho. Like, people are, for the most part, always in on the joke. But, like, you know, we have that in Vampire's Kiss where it is intentionally funny. But then also, obviously, people laugh at 
the performance of Nicolas Cage, who is at his, I mean, this is like, this is almost like peak Cage-ness, like of, as far as harnessing that chaotic acting energy that Cage possesses, in terms of taking that raw energy and harnessing it and putting it into the film, its best use would be either Vampire's Kiss, Mandy, or Face Off. Those are the three movies that understand Nick Cage as a person and, you know, um, what his capabilities bring to a performance. I will say, I have not seen um, Wild at Heart yet. I have not seen Moonstruck. So I know those are kind of different movies, like, because that's like in the era where Nick Cage was actually acting. Raising Arizona, he also, you know, brings his quirks, but I'd say even in Raising Arizona, he's definitely pretty reined in as far as cageisms go, because I think he just wasn't there yet. I mean, no, this movie came out before Raising Arizona, so I mean, I guess he had realized his cageness, but he wasn't putting it to use like he does here in Vampire's Kiss. And people think that this is. Um, Cage being an idiot and that we are laughing at him and you shouldn't be laughing at him he knows what he's fucking doing in this movie um Vampire's Kiss I mean they both Vampire's Kiss and American Psycho both have black comedy however American Psycho uses it um as satire and you know very on the nose satire it's like anti-subtle satire and the way that Vampire's Kiss uses it is this movie is camp. It's a camp like masterpiece. It and not and I say camp, not campy. This isn't, you know, BC movie, you know, goofy um horror or something like that. This isn't campy like it's not cheesy, but it is a camp movie. Like, you know, the people were trying to figure out this distinction when camp was the theme for the Met Gala. A few years ago. Oh, shit. Oh. (laughs) I pulled down on a wire and I was, like, scared it was going to take my whole microphone down. That scared the shit out of me for a second. But, um, but yeah, like, this is camp where you're using, you know, cheese and camp, but in a way that it's enhancing the movie. It's on purpose and it is pushing the, the art piece whatever that may be but in this case it's pushing the movie to the point uh to the line of absurdity you know that this is almost an absurdist comedy it's almost there but it's not it's still controlled just enough and that's what vampires kisses and that's what it does with nick cage's fucking powers it just it lets him do his you know they let him push to the limits of you know where cageisms go too far they let him go right up to that line and they let him just walk all over that line and he just gives us
love that scene so much. Like, that scene is the epitome of this movie. And, um, yeah, so both movies use black comedy in different ways, but yet that is still kind of the primary subgenre at play. So, yeah, maybe they're not horror first, but next is, like, the psychological horror aspect, the surreal thriller aspect of both movies where we have two unreliable narrators, you know, and we are watching events unfold that we don't know if what they're experiencing is real or not. Um, you know, so they both use that aspect and also just like the implied nature of things. Um, we, we kind of keep getting that to bring out some of the darker elements. American Psycho goes a lot darker, obviously. He's actually killing women. He's sexually assaulting them. Um, he's just very violent, has such, um, you know, crass and, you know, disgusting and diabolical thoughts. You know, it's definitely a lot darker. And Patrick Bateman is darker just in general. You know, he's a sociopath in the movie versus Peter Lowe in Vampire's Kiss. He's just like schizophrenic and bipolar and he's kind of at the mercy of um of his mind a little bit more. And even though he is also very scummy, he also does have a little bit more of a layer of charm and humanity to him than Patrick Bateman does. Because everything with Patrick Bateman is, you know, it's synthetic. It's not real. And so, and Peter Lowe is a real lived in character just suffering from like, you know, harder bouts of, you know, mental, mental, uh, struggles in general. I don't know how to, uh, phrase that. So, so they both do have these psychological horror and like, and you feel bad and like you, and like, you know, you see Peter Lowe going to points where he's literally willing to kill himself. Or, I mean, we know that he's trying to kill himself, but he's also, like, he's trying to kill himself, but he's also convinced, he's so, like, convinced and delusional in his brain that, like, if somebody shoots him, he won't die because he's a vampire. Like, that is fucking, that's kind of a crazy thought, you know, of getting pushed to that point where, like, your, like, your thoughts are pushing the, like, lines and the fabric of reality and you don't even know it. And that's pretty crazy. So they both do use the surreal and psychological aspects um, in similar ways as well. However, American Psycho does it in a bit of a darker fashion. So, I mean, there's other similarities that we'll get into a little bit more detail with after we talk about both movies real quick. But it's like, you know, like I said, like you have these fucking two white 80s yuppies, you know, that they just, all their life is, is working and which is, you know, doing bullshit and then partying at night at clubs, you know, doing drugs, um, sleeping with different women, all that jazz. Um, they both have assistants that they love to harass. They both have jobs that are seemingly important that we never actually see them do at any point in the film. It's just them being in their office, but then yelling at other people to do stuff. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of just broad stroke similarities throughout the film. 
Um, you know, they both have someone that is like kind of skeptical of them and like kind of sits in to receive the information from the protagonist in the form of um, Detective Kimball in American Psycho and then the therapist in Vampire's Kiss, which is, you know, where we basically get it set up of them being unreliable narrators as we see them telling these characters you know, things that we obviously know to be a lie and kind of giving them different information, but that makes it question the information that we've been given as well. So lots of, lots and lots of parallels going on here. So American Psycho released in 2000, directed by Mary Heron. It's based on the book by Brett Easton Ellis on a screenplay done by Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner. Um, we have a really nice score that is showcased in the opening scene of the film done by John Cale. Absolutely great. Um, the cinematography done by uh, Andre Secula, or Secula um, is, I think, I mean, it is like very intentionally flat and plain and presented pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot of like, you know, trickery or like slickness to the film, but I think that's very much on purpose, like kind of playing at the, you know, slightly above average, you know, uh, presentation of these like, you know, white men that we see in the film. Like, you know, the film doesn't look bad, but it's just enough to where it doesn't look bad and there's nothing special about it. And I guess that is also like a testament to the like, you know, how all the fucking actors in this film look the fucking same. All the guys that work at the office, you know, which is a running gag throughout the film that characters look like other characters. Patrick Bateman is mistaken for Paul Allen, is uh, mistaken for Marcus Habersham or whatever. And, um, you know, and that's even pushed even further in the business card scene where they're all comparing just white business cards that just have different letterings or different shades of white, you know? Um, so, I mean, maybe all of that plays into the very flat cinematography of this, but that is also why I chose this movie to do another installment of Monochrome Ghosts, which, if you don't follow me on Instagram, is a little photo series that I'm doing where I'm taking horror movies that I love that I think would look better in black and white. So I did that with American Psycho. Um, I did that with Us as well a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, because color isn't super important to this film. So I think this movie in black and white, if they want to go for, you know, homogenized and sterile looking, I think black and white would have suited it very well. I think a lot of movies, I think a lot more movies should be in black and white. And I think American Psycho is one of those movies that looks really cool and just like kind of just it just gives it another layer you know of especially like with the surreal aspect of it too because like it's I put it in black and white but I didn't um, mess with like the contrast too much so it is like still like kind of highlighted too so it's this real weird like Pleasantville look to it and I really dig it you know more movies should be in black and white if the color is not important get rid of that bullshit I guess we do have, like, some reds that are somewhat important just because of the blood, you know? But at the same time, I feel like if the blood wasn't red, you know, and the movie's in black and white, I think that just, like, kind of makes 
shows like Patrick Bateman's, you know, how much he just like, just how unbothered that he is by it. I think that would add to it. We have an absolute all-star cast here, led by, of course, Christian Bale portraying Mr. Patrick Bateman. But the all-star cast just, I mean, like, because this movie was made in 2000, so a lot of these people at this time weren't as popular as they are now, or as they would go on to be very shortly. I mean, some of them were, you know, they all had um, reputations and were known, Even, but even Christian Bale wasn't, like, super well-known, and there was a lot of controversy in that that went into the casting of Christian Bale. But in addition to Bale, the all-star ensemble cast includes Reese Witherspoon. We got Chloe Sevigny. We have Josh Lucas, Jared Leto, Justin Thoreau. And of course, we have respected friend of the show, Mr. Willem Dafoe. Ooh, what a good cast. That rhymed very well. That made me very happy. But uh, yeah, and Christian Bale at the time wasn't super popular. The studio... Um, this movie took like four years to like actually get made and be released, um, from the time that Mary Heron wanted to do it. And they tried to drop her as a director. Um, they wanted like, uh, David Cronenberg. Um, and who else was the other big name that I saw that they wanted to do it? Um, but David Cronenberg was like the closest to doing it besides Mary Heron. Um, and then like Mary Heron, she was very dedicated to having Christian Bale in the role. And the studio kept fighting against it, trying to cast other people like Ed Norton or Ewan McGregor. And then um, the biggest came that they they offered the role to Leonardo DiCaprio. The studio did. Mary Heron had already offered the role to Christian Bale. They had like had like a handshake deal on it, you know. But the studio themselves, they said, no, we reached out to Leonardo DiCaprio. And then Bale had to hit up DiCaprio and be like, hey, homie don't take this role, please don't do this movie, I really want to do it, and he d- didn't even mention that he had already made an agreement with Mary Heron, he just like reached out and said like, hey man, like you shouldn't do this movie, I want to do this movie, and Leonardo DiCaprio obliged, and Christian Bale was back on, Mary Heron said, we're fucking doing this movie with Christian Bale, and I mean, could you imagine anyone else doing this movie besides Christian Bale, I mean, this was a movie that stood out to me, where I was like, oh, like this is a an actor putting in a performance that is just so dialed into the character and linked to the intricacies of that character and like especially his like the legacy that Patrick Bateman has as an iconic character of horror or just of movies in general, like this is a movie that lives or dies on the back of Christian Bale. And I mean, I love those other actors that I named, um, but just none of them had everything, like all the right recipes to fucking cook this fucking meal like Christian Bale did. And he fucking cooked and ate the shit out of this role. Like he was just so good. And like, and that was what stood out to me as I was younger And then as I would keep watching the movie, and then as I would get older and understand more of the jokes and humor, I understood that more. And then as I matured as someone um, trying to get into filmmaking and learning about filmmaking techniques and, um, and writing and screenplays and editing, then I appreciated the film on that level because, man, Mary Heron, 
Um, she hasn't, I mean, she's directed other films, but I mean, just like she hasn't done anything like this. I mean, and just being a female director doing this specific story too, like people were calling her like anti-feminist and misogynistic herself or even just wanting to do the movie. And I'm just like, again, I can't imagine like someone else directing this movie. I could, but it would be very different. Just like everything had to go just like perfect for this film to work. And the way it does, it is it is like one of those movies that like is about as close to perfect as you can get. It hits all of its intentions as a film. It balances all the subgenres that's working. It uses the performance and, you know, setting effectively it it's a um very piercing character story um about just like this fucked up dude you know that could be anybody and it just like the the pacing is fantastic it's a good you know hour 45 minutes i believe hour 48 um you know no fucking fat on it this is a very uh, muscular film as friend of the show Todd Strauss-Schulson would say like, cause it is, it's a, it's a very, like everything has a purpose. Everything is moving together. It's lean. It doesn't, everything is very choice conscious and you very much see that specifically in the editing, um, of the movie as well. Editing done by, um, I think there were two editors, um, no edited by Andrew Marcus really shout out to him um on his work that's like the latest thing that stood out to me in case you fucking live under a rock and you haven't seen american psycho stop this podcast and go watch the movie as you should always do with every movie on this podcast go watch the movie first and then come back but in case you haven't seen this movie the movie follows patrick bateman a wall street yuppie who works at a very vague business job, um, and he has very shallow associates. They are all pretty much the same dude. All they care about is money and drugs and very surface level things that are just all pieces of shit. And he's just, he puts on a front that he's better than all of them when in reality he's absolutely batshit. All he does is think about killing people in which he eventually cannot control these impulses anymore and starts to act upon them going on a ridiculous killing spree and the movie plays out you don't really know if it's happening or not because by the time we get to the end it's as if it didn't everything is cleaned up and even he doesn't have the answer as to what just happened is he ever going to um you know be accounted for for his crimes we never know, but that's the, the beauty of that fucking movie is like, yeah, like, it was it real? Is it not? The message is still the same that there are people like this that do these things and get away with them and just never answer to those crimes because of the privilege that they have, specifically the white privilege. This movie gets more relevant every year. I mean, fucking, you want to talk about Black Lives Matter movement and, like, look at this movie. Like, I mean, this movie, the literal only black person in this movie is a homeless man who gets fucking stabbed to death and his fucking dog stomped on. Ah, that's fucking brutal. And it's like... You know, but like, hey, like that's a choice that the movie 
had to make to get a certain fucking thing across of like showing you every person in this movie, whether they're killing people or not, are just fucked up and they're terrible people. And of course, the movie does it as, you know, just portrays them as all fucking white Wall Street yuppie people. This movie um, also, I mean, has some fucking a lot of queer subtext as well. There's some uh, there's some gay shit going on. There's some toxic masculinity, which could be rooted in homophobia. Um, we definitely see that with Patrick Bateman at one point. He's about to kill one of his associates, who then turns around and starts kissing his arm and like revealing like, oh yeah, no, I've totally been in love with you, which we've been picking up on this entire movie. It's the guy whose wife he sleep who Patrick is sleeping with, but then he's gay, and then. Patrick is so appalled by this, he stops his murder, like, he starts sweating so profusely, the man washes his leather gloves in the sink to wash the gay off of his gloves, because he just can't take it, and it's, is Patrick also secretly gay, because of his, you know, extreme, um, attention to detail when it comes to his body, and um, his, you know, self-care routine. But, hey, there's nothing gay about self-care. You know, Patrick Bateman, debatably, is also pretty woke, as we see him also, like, calling out his friends for, like, anti-Semitic remarks. But at the same time, he could still be homophobic, or he could also be closeted gay. It kind of reads both ways. That's the beauty of this movie. It reads both ways in pretty much every aspect of, you know, the way you want to read it. Except that's very clear coat that Patrick Bateman is evil and he's a scary piece of shit. I was talking about editing. 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 I was talking Because the editing is just really good. Like I said, there's not a lot of stylistic choices in the editing. It's um very, very straightforward. There's not like a lot of slick transitions or anything like that. That is the one stylistic choice that it does that I really do appreciate is it will lead up to a moment of Patrick doing something incredibly heinous and then it will just cut. Uh, it'll do a quick cut to the aftermath. It'll jump forward in time. It'll do a quick cut. And it's usually a close-up, too, that kind of jars you into it. So it's like the jarringness of it makes you feel the action without having to see it. But they set up the action so well. Like, Mary Heron goes into this on um, The Core. It was a uh, talk show on Shudder where Mickey Keating would interview filmmakers about certain tricks. And that's what her episode was about. It was about the editing of the film and um, building up to something and then executing, you know, the uh, subversion of what you think is going to happen. And that's exactly what she does. Multiple times there'll be, you know, there's the scene where he's having the threesome and then it just cuts to him going to a tool drawer and pulling out a hanger and there's a bunch of other like fucking crazy looking tools and then just cuts hard cuts to the two of them leaving Patrick's apartment and they're all bruised and bloody or there's like another one like the very in- first instance of Patrick doing something of killing someone 
is implied off screen. We see Patrick walking down the sidewalk. He's walking with a woman. And then um, he like kind of looks at her, you know, and they like kind of have a moment and he doesn't say anything. They just walk alongside next to each other. And then it fucking hard cuts to him just holding a lock of hair and holding it up to his head and like kind of sniffing it or whatever. And it's like, that's his very first kill of the movie and we don't see it. And they do that multiple times throughout the movie. So that's something that I appreciated um, rewatching it yet again. I've seen this movie so many times. And the thing is, what is there to say about this movie that hasn't been said before? You know, besides, you know, again, Christian Bale's performance just is absolutely amazing. You know, um, especially when we have the um, scene where he kills Paul Allen and we have all the improv and the charisma and just the iconography of that scene. How many times has it been um, parodied on a TV show or in other movies and uh, things like that? It's just so iconic. However, I do want to highlight Bale's performance with, I mean, the morning routine monologue is one of the best monologues in the movie. It's weird because I always think of this as the opening of the film, which I think it like I almost think it should be. But however, I do like that we open and we see him in the club scene at the same time. I feel like they could have switched them because I always feel like this is actually the opening of the movie, because if it was, this would be the best opening of a movie ever. Like just like the introduction into a character's brain, you know, and I mean, this monologue has been parodied and done before, too. But just to give you uh, the end of it, which just gives me chills absolutely every single time. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable. I simply am not there. I mean, that monologue, the delivery of it, paired with the visual of him literally peeling a face mask off. I mean, it's it's fucking iconic. It's so good. What else is iconic about this movie? The fucking quotes. I have to return some videotapes. Did you know I was utterly insane? Sometimes my behavior can be uh, erratic is a line that I literally say in my like everyday life all the fucking time. There's just so many quotes. I did find a new one that I really liked. And I mean, it's also in a, it's in a monologue, but it's just the line itself. It's, um, it's a monologue. He's like talking, it's like another one of like his like workout routine kind of monologues. And, uh, he's laying in the tanning bed and he says, I feel lethal. And he's like, I feel lethal. And I think it goes on to say like frenzied, uh, like frenzied thoughts or something like that. But I feel lethal. Ooh, that's like a sexy fucking line, even though it's absolutely terrible. But I don't know. I want to use that like as a fucking like song title or something or as a or maybe even an album title. I feel lethal. That's just really fucking cool. I don't know. But there's just um amazing things. Um, A lot of people know about like how Mary Heron had Willem Dafoe play scenes um, three different ways, um, of him either a, like being on to Patrick Bateman, him not being sure, or him thinking Patrick Bateman's innocent. And then she kind of in, when they went in for editing, she just mixed up the takes. So you really never know, 
um, because it's like obviously we know that Patrick Bateman is very unreliable, but then also it's like um, mixing it up if people believe him or not, and it also like keeps Patrick Bateman on edge as well. It's a um, it's a really cool um, little behind the scenes tidbit. Um, and then I just love the third act because it really does go like extra surreal, like the moment where the ATM says, feed me stray cat. And that's when, you know, we're in like full surreal territory. So, I mean, it literally is just up in the air, what you believe if the end of the movie actually happened. I mean, he has a gun that seemingly never runs out of bullets and actually, and then he like shoots a car and it explodes and he even looks at the gun So it's like, I almost like to read this movie as like Patrick Bateman at that point is a real guy and he's like now realizing that he's in a movie and like him when he goes on these snaps, you know, of these, you know, these, um, murder fucking binges or whatever you call them, murder streaks, serials. But he does that whenever he starts realizing that it's a movie. But then the movie like resets everything and puts it back to normal. It's like, no, 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 no. Everything is perfect. And it's like, whoa. I don't know. So that's like a weird read that I like to have. I don't know if anybody else has had that theory. But if not, it's mine. You've heard it here first on Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. But that's about the only, like, new commentary I have to add to this movie. Because, I mean, it's just, it's a fucking classic. It really is. All the supporting cast performances are on point. The score by John Cale is pretty damn good. Weird song choice for the end credits, that um, Bowie remix. Um, I love Bowie, but it just didn't fit. Because, like, why wouldn't you have just ended the movie with a Huey Lewis song or a Phil Collins song? Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's one weird nitpick that I do have about it. Um, oh, I just saw another quote that he says when he's at the end and somebody asks, they ask how he's doing at, um, and they're at lunch and he's just like, or at brunch and he's just like, how are you doing? And he's like, I'm just a happy camper rocking and rolling. And it's, it's so fucking funny. Also paired with, I love how sweaty Patrick Bateman is the entire third act. Because he's just so fucking nervous and, like, going fucking absolutely crazy. And it's like, you know, because Patrick Bateman is so on top of his face, you know, not being oily and looking good all the time. So it's another little fun tidbit. Absolutely love American Psycho. And then I started thinking about American Psycho again even more once I watched Vampire's Kiss for the first time. Vampire's Kiss came out in 1989, directed by Robert Bierman, written by Joseph Minion, and I didn't watch this movie for the first time until a couple months ago, because y'all fucking lied to me, the world, they lied to me, because this movie has always been, like, I mean, just according to the internet, because that's the film space that I'm on, where I'm talking to people about films, and the movie has become a meme, I mean, a lot of Nick Cage's things that he does becomes a meme he's the meme master but like I've just seen just too many YouTube videos and like other podcasts like trash the movie and like make it out to be like it's one of the so bad it's good movies and that's not the case it's the movie is in on the joke and the movie is good because it's just fucking good 
And then, I mean, I looked a little bit closer. I mean, the Rotten Tomato score is like 61%. So, I mean, just the overall opinion of people. People seem to have positive opinions, at least from a critic standpoint. But then it's like, this has become like a cult following, cult classic movie, because people just appreciate it for Nick Cage's zaniness and um, his performance. But they don't like really talk about like how good the movie actually is of um this guy Peter Lowe having this like sexual depravity and loneliness and like dealing with a mental disorder dealing with mental illness whether it be him being bipolar schizophrenic or both um the movie doesn't get enough credit for that for um it just like it's just like descent of a man just like his descent into madness i think it's just like up there with that type of movie as well i guess that would be another subgenre that can be under the horror category as well descent into madness and i mean he does it really well just because it is nick cage his performance um he just made the character just so um, like very distinct, you know, it's, it's, you can't say that it's Nick Cage playing Nick Cage. He plays a character. Like if you listen to Nick Cage, like in interviews, he loves acting. He knows acting. Like he knows like history and theory and shit like that. And he like has a distinct style that he describes as his own, that he has pioneered this operatic style of acting and being very big and using his voice as expression. And like, that's like one thing he says, like when he creates a character, when he's playing a character, he loves to create their voice because that's the most important thing to him. Um, he fucking knows what he's doing. Okay. He's yes. He just makes a lot of movies. He makes a lot of movies because he likes to spend money. And sometimes he does lower quality movies but that's not always because of him he goes into movies he gives it a hundred and fucking 15 percent he puts on he puts in a performance he creates a character and he does his fucking thing because nick cage loves acting but it's just like yeah his style might be odd it doesn't fit every movie he doesn't always you know choose good movies but when he does when he picks a when he gets on a movie with a great director and an even decent script, he doesn't even need a good script, just a decent script, but if he gets on with a good director and it's a well-made film and he's dialed in and they fucking also have the equation to fucking harness the cage-osity that he possesses, then that movie becomes like fucking badass. And Vampire's Kisses, I think, one of the earlier instances of all those things just like kind of coming together. And um, it, because the movie is directed very well, it has a really uh, cool gothic tone to it that comes in through the score done by Colin Towns. Um, fantastic opening and closing credit themes. Absolutely love it. There is a little bit more style here. Um, the um, cinematography done by Stefan Sapsky. And, um, but yeah, it just, uh, it does give this version of New York a little bit more seedy gothic tone to it, even with like, because like hit the portrayal of most of the movie being at night or inside Peter's office, you know? Um, so it just like feels like it is just like always night, which adds to the surreal aspect to it, adds to the vampire aspects to it. 
Um, this movie does have some like Tim Burton vibes. Even there's like a whimsicalness to the movie a little bit. Um, and I do love pseudo vampire movies. Like this kind of fits in the category of a Martin or um, the Transfiguration, which I also saw just a few months ago. A really great pseudo vampire movie. And like, what could you ask for besides Nick Cage? being a vampire like what else could you ask for in a camp vampire movie a campfire <laughs> a campfire movie a campfire movie uh <laughs> i tried but um it just it comes together really well and uh you want to talk about weird voices like the voice that uh nick cage does for peter lowe is really fucking funny and iconic you like talks like this in this fancy accent but he's not fancy at all i don't i really don't know what it is i don't know if i really capture it well he does feel kind of donald trump-esque which both of these characters are like guys that idolize trump and not like in the like literal sense of now i mean they literally call it out in american psycho but like the late 80s Donald Trump was a fucking big deal back then. Like, that was when he was a fucking hot shot and shit. And these kind of guys idolized him and, like, looked up to him and his lifestyle. So, again, American Psycho and Vampire's Kiss, to a degree, get more relevant as the years go on. What else are some things I love about Vampire's Kiss? Um, I do love the tone, like, not only the comedic tone. Um, the movie is very erotic. It's very sexual. You know, because I think just like the whole vampirism is in place for Peter's sexual frustration in tandem with his mental illness. But it is a very erotic movie. There is a, a Nick Cage gets lots of women, gets lots, plenty of action because he is like oddly charming still, even though he's like this weird eccentric dude. And then but then we see his like behavior in the daytime, like towards his co-workers. Um I mean, there's even a line that kind of sums up the movie itself. It sums up Nick Cage's performance as Peter Lowe, but he's um, talking to the therapist and he's describing the encounter where the supposed vampire lady he was making sexy times with bit him and turned him into a vampire, which um, backtrack a little bit. If you have not seen Vampire's Kiss, watch this movie. But the movie is basically about this rich, yuppie white guy who gets bitten in a sexual encounter by a woman who he believes to be a vampire. Now he believes he is a vampire. And it's him trying to convince people he's a vampire and somebody to kill him before he starts hurting people because he's a vampire. Not because he's just going to hurt people, because he's dangerous to himself and society. Ah! But, um... But yeah, and there's a scene he's like talking where he's recapping the uh, event to his therapist and he's like, I was horny and a little drunk. So I had, because I had a little to drink. So I was horny because I was drunk. <laughs> and that's basically the movie. You either feel horny or you feel like you're drunk watching this movie. Um, you They're like... Does anyone else feel that when you watch certain Nick Cage movies, like you feel like you're getting high or you feel like you're like getting drunk to a degree? I don't know. I don't know if that's just me and why I can appreciate Nick Cage's performances because I just like get on his level, you know, 
<laughs> um, but like I do feel like I'm on drugs whenever I watch a, a good Nick Cage performance in a good way, the good drugs. <laughs> um, but what else do I love about this movie? I think that they do the subplot with the assistant much better here in Vampire's Kiss than they do in American Psycho. Again, another parallel. They have assistants that they love to harass. Gene is great in American Psycho just because Chloe Sevigny is good in the role. However, um, Alva here, and what was her real name? Um, the gal that plays Alva. Um, Maria Conchita Alonso. Um, she is very, she is very, very good, but they also give her a little bit more. Um, they make you sympathize with her because you get some background into her life and stuff like that. And you just see her like back and forth of trusting and mistrusting Peter Lowe. Cause you can see him be charming and be nice and like put on a show for her and then he gets her in, but then he fucking goes crazy and they snaps in the office, which again, that scene where he's doing the alphabetical shit and he's like selling this franticness to his therapist, that scene is always taken out of context when what he's doing there, it it falls in line with his character and what we've seen his behavior towards his coworkers, specifically Alva. So it's like I, I, it's there. Like they do that subplot really well, and then the scene where he um assaults her in the parking garage is very well done and effective. It's you know kind of comedic, but at the same time, this is like probably like the the most intense that you feel in the film, because he's you know you do see him that he's like kind of snapped at this point, and he snapped past the point of you know seeing Alva. And then he's just like, it doesn't matter anymore. So he like goes into this frenzy and he's like trying to, but then also like telling her to kill him. And she has a gun with blanks. We know that she has blanks in it, but he doesn't. He thinks that she has a real gun. And then it's like him going just crazy saying, shoot me, shoot me. Like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to rape you. I'm going to bite you, whatever. Shoot me. And then she's shooting at his feet to like scare him. And he's like, and he just like keeps coming towards her. And there's like, one where she shoots like three times in a row and he's like, no, no, not the ground. Me, shoot me, shoot me. And they just keeps getting closer. And then he just, uh, and then he rips her shirt open and starts biting on her. And then, I mean, he says later on that he raped her. Like, I mean, we didn't, we don't see this. And I didn't even think they implied it, but he says that like later on, he says, yeah, I raped my coworker. So, I mean, that's fucking crazy. So, I mean, that is a pretty horrific thing. That's the most horror that we get out of this besides nods to vampires, though, which I think they do uh, in a really fun way. You know, just like this idea of like when you get turned into a vampire, this like confusion that you might have, you know, and like, oh, what's actually going on? Um, And like, you know, just like questioning the whole time. I think it's a little bit more clear cut. <laughs> because we do see that um he gets um stabbed um by the dude with the stake which i mean i guess does make it still ambiguous because in theory vampires die with a stake through the heart and fucking um the emilio dude finds him and fucking um low holds it to his thing and then fucking emilio pushes the stake into his chest 
So, I mean, we could also say, yes, he was a vampire and he just got killed with a stake. Or we see that he just finally fucking snaps and he thinks he's a vampire and then he just got some dude to fucking kill him just because. Um, I do think that it, like I said, like, I mean, there are surreal aspects, but I do think it's, you can explain it easier in this one that it's all in his head versus in American Psycho. I think it's, it, it hits the movie harder if it was all real and not surreal. Um, because I mean, because with Patrick Bateman's conversation with his lawyer at the end, that's pretty much him confirming that what we saw was all fake. And then we'd see Gene just looking in his journal and then you could easily just explain like, oh, the entire movie of American Psycho that we just watched, um, was just what we're seeing, what Patrick Bateman is thinking in his head, you know? So I think it's, you know, sometimes the movie does lean a little bit that way, but then I think it hits harder if you think about American Psycho being real about this guy, not um, attributing, you know, having to pay for his crimes. And then I guess you could say the same thing for Vampire's Kiss. I think it hits harder, obviously, if it's real that this dude was just driven to this brink of insanity. But then at the same time, I like to think of Vampire's Kiss more as it was also real and maybe he was a vampire or maybe he wasn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Fine. I could go I could go either way on both films, I suppose. And that's what makes both of them a lot of fun as well. Like I said, there's a lot of surface level comparisons between these two movies, but then you can literally go deeper and you can pull parallels, more details, characters that line up with each other. I mean, there's literally um, the suits that they both mainly wear are the exact same color schemes. There's <laughs> like I fucking shouted it out on Twitter, but it's like the shot, there's both of them in these big sunglasses with the same color shirt and ties on and everything. It's these movies. It's like, so I'm like, was Mary Heron a big fan of Vampire's Kiss? Or was, I mean, because like even the book of American Psycho doesn't have this tone that the movie has. The, the, book itself is a bit drier and Patrick Bateman is portrayed less charismatic and likable even though I mean he's barely likable in the movie but just because of the performance you know um but they but it's a different thing so I would say like Mary Heron like read the book but she was a big fan of Vampire's Kiss and that's what she wanted to do with these movies and my last connection that I make between these movies are they fit in the category of movies I wish were non-Batman Batman movies. You could say that Patrick Bateman or Peter Lowe are Bruce Wayne and his broken psyche, and these are just like different vignettes of him and his different psyche aroused by bats. Does that sound familiar? And, I mean, like, Patrick Bateman... Like, if he was a good person, would be Batman. Like, or Batman, Bruce Wayne, if he didn't use his impulses and put them towards crime fighting, he would be Patrick Bateman just murdering people. So, I like to think that both these movies could be about Bruce Wayne. Another movie that fits in the category of non-Batman Batman movies would be You Were Never Really Here 
starring Joaquin Phoenix. That's like a that's like a Bruce Wayne dealing with the PTSD of being Batman. And I like uh, thinking of that one. So the uh, these two movies could also be in that universe. So if you know, you know. But that's going to go ahead and do it for those two movies. Let's go ahead and wrap shit up. Um, what do you guys think? Go ahead and do this double feature for me. And then let me know your thoughts um, just between the similarities of them, between the tones of them. Um, do you think that Vampire's Kiss is better than it's given credit for? Just let me know. Um, let me know on Twitter or Instagram at Bloody Blunts with three O's. And uh, let me know what you think. Make sure you guys are letting me know what you think of the podcast in general on Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and leave a five-star review. Let me go ahead and hit you guys with that one more time. But overall, um, I just hope that you enjoyed this episode specifically. Um, the fact that I recorded this episode twice just to make sure it was as good as it can be because American Psycho is a movie that is very close to my heart and I love it so much. So I wanted to make sure that this episode was uh, really good. And also, um, you know, justice for vampires because I know people like it still. But I think people like it for the wrong reason. Put some respect on Vampire's Kiss's name, okay? This movie isn't just, it's not so bad it's good. It's good, okay? So that's what I just wanted to make sure that I brought uh, to the table with these two movies. But that's going to go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club new episodes every Tuesday. We have a bonus episode this Friday and we are talking House of a Thousand Corpses, so be on the lookout for that, but then another episode on Tuesday. Follow me on social media at Bloody Blunts with three O's. Find me on YouTube as well. Until next time, stay lifted, my friends. <laughs>